For status, I am Mira Nawulsi. On June 3rd, the Sudanese state security forces and its militia violently attacked and dispersed thousands of demonstrators who had camped outside the military headquarters in the Sudanese capital for weeks. The violent crackdown left dozens dead and hundreds wounded. The sit-in was initially held seeking an end to Omar al-Bashir's three decades-long authoritarian rule and later to demand that the army generals who toppled him hand over power to a civilian government. According to doctors linked to the protest movement, at least 128 people have been killed since June 3rd. Doctors also say that paramilitary forces carried out dozens of rapes during the attack on the protest camp. To get a sense of the recent events in Sudan, Shahram Aghamir spoke with Khalid Madani, an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and the chair of the African Studies program at McGill University in Canada. Professor Madani started by talking about the June 3rd massacre in the capital, Khartoum. Well, the massacre that occurred on uh, June 3rd was really pivotal in, in terms of changing the political dynamics. In particular, it stalled and eliminated rather the, the negotiations that were ongoing between the what was then termed the Transitional Military Council and the Forces for Freedom of Change, the umbrella group that encompasses upwards of 20 political parties and different associations. A few hours prior to this horrible massacre, uh, there was a great deal of progress on the negotiations. The structure of government was agreed upon in terms of the sovereign council. There was an agreement that they would be the majority civilian, even an agreement on a rotating leadership of the sovereign council that uh, would have, in the course of three years, half of that time, uh, you'd have a military leader and then a rotation of a civilian leader. So there were compromises uh, made on, on the part of the forces of freedom of change that many people thought would eventually result in an agreement that would lead to a civilian-led uh, government. There was also an agreement on the legislative of the interim government, uh, wherein 67% of a 300-member parliament would uh, be appointed by or would come from the forces of freedom of change. So many Sudanese were optimistic at that time. A few hours um, after that uh, agreement, or at least a few hours before it was supposed to be signed, according to members of the, of the opposition, what the Transitional Military Council did was to sanction and uh, many, of course, would say command the rapid support forces, the paramilitia forces, to enter the sit-in, disperse it by force. Uh, and of course, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, lead to a massacre that uh, the city of Khartoum has never experienced in entire history. Not only were upwards of 100 people killed, but as you said, uh, scores of um, rape cases, uh, women as well as uh, some men. Uh, there was a horrendous throwing of uh, bodies uh, into the Nile River. Uh, a kind of massacre that had not been experienced by people in the Sudan, of course, uh, but certainly for people in Darfur and other regions, it was not unfamiliar. This event uh, changed the uh, kind of dynamic uh, on the ground and in terms of Sudan's position or rather the Transitional Military Council's position worldwide, as you probably have 
Garnet and your uh, listeners probably know at this point, the entire world is now looking at Sudan, especially with respect to this kind of violation of, of human rights, whether it is Western countries, the International Criminal Court, the United Nations, uh, the European Union, all have condemned what this Transitional Military Council has done, and of course, what the Rapid Support Forces have done on the ground. So um, because of those events, to bring the, your listeners up to date, we are now basically at a standstill. The opposition has said that they will not negotiate without a mediator. And um, today, the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia is traveling, I believe, to Khartoum uh, to try to restart negotiations uh, between the what Sudanese now call the military council, uh, or rather the coup council, so to speak, rather than transitional military council, and the forces of freedom of change. It's important to highlight that the forces of freedom of change following this horrible massacre have been fairly, very clear about putting forth conditions for the resumption of negotiations. These include the insistence on an independent international committee to investigate these uh, the massacre and those responsible for it. They have also called on the dispersal of the militia, of the rapid support forces from Khartoum, and asking that they leave the city and go back to the barracks, so to speak. There has also been an internet shutdown immediately after the massacre to not only quell protest and dissent, but many would say also to give carte blanche to the violence perpetuated by the military council and the militia. And so the opposition, uh, one of the conditions is that the internet has to be unblocked and open to the Sudanese people, which is extremely uh, important, and also the release of uh, many, many political prisoners who are still detained. Uh, those are the conditions that have been put forth by the forces of freedom of change in order for these talks to resume. So this is where we stand at the moment, and that is to bring listeners up to date. So we'll see how the mediation goes on. At this point, it's led by the African Union in conjunction with the regional body, the Intergovernmental Authority of, of Drought and Development, EGAD, that uh, comprises countries in the Horn of Africa. The massacre that occurred on June 3rd is unprecedented in the Great Khartoum capital area. There was an incident similar to this in 2013 in which 200 people were also slaughtered by the Rapid Support Forces militia. Um, uh, that was, of course, also uh, a pivotal, horrendous uh, um, massacre that occurred, but this one is even larger in scale in the Khartoum area. But I want to be clear, of course, that uh, there have been, of course, uh, much larger massacres in Darfur and in uh, the conflict areas of the Nuba Mountains and uh, Blue Nile, which borders South Sudan. But in terms of the Great Khartoum area, this is unprecedented in terms of the kind of violence and killing that, and rape that have occurred by militia forces in the capital city itself. What can you tell us about the Rapid Support Forces, RSF, more popularly known as the Janjaweed, the militia responsible for committing war crimes in Darfur? We should also talk about their commander, who is widely known by his nickname, Hemeti, who back in April had remarkably claimed that he had refused an order by Mr. Bashir to open fire on protesters. Yes, I think that the origins of the Rapid Support Forces go back directly to the Janjaweed, which I think that your listeners and the whole world know were the militia forces that were established by Umar Bashir himself beginning in 2003 to enact the horrible uh, ethnic cleansing against insurgents in Darfur. 
that at the time was uh, led by a man by the name of Musa Hilal, uh, from, uh, chosen from a small pastoral group in the northern part of the Darfur area. They basically uh, were established as a militia and as a mercenary force by Umar Bashir in order to put down the insurgency in Darfur. And uh, beginning in 2003, as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners uh, know, upwards of Almost 300,000 people were killed in the Darfur area. Perhaps a million and a half were internally displaced. And of course, many refugees in Chad and other bordering regions. A real a massacre, unprecedented variety, even by the standards of the conflicts in Sudan. It's important to understand that, uh, as I said, the RSF is really directly linked to the Janjaweed. It's really the latest mutation. The p- current leader, Mohammed Hamdan Daglu, uh, known as Hemeti, it was took over the leadership in 2013 at the behest of, obviously, the appointment by Omar Bashir for him to take over these militias. He was also responsible for so-called border security in Darfur area that was uh, indirectly funded by the European Union to stem the tide of immigration. And by 2015, uh, he was, uh, or the militias, the rapid support forces were incorporated into the army as a separate paramilitary force, but basically as a Praetorian guard to protect Umar Bashir himself personally. At that time, in uh, beginning in 2015, Umar Bashir could no longer <sighs> be confident that uh, the intelligence services or the uh, Sudan armed forces would protect him. And so he used the militias and the uh, Hemeti to protect himself personally. Uh, when the sit-in uh, began on April 6, and the uh, millions of Sudanese uh, waged the sit-in in front of the army headquarters, Hemeti, of course, as you noted, uh, came out and said that he was in support of the Sudanese um, sit-in and the protesters and the revolution. And he was received by some as someone who was on the side of the people. He did say that he had uh, rejected the order by Omar Bashir to disperse the sit-in by force. We now know, of course, that there was never any intention on his part or the part of the Transitional Military Council to really cede power to a civilian-led government. But he did have some semblance of legitimacy, at least at the very beginning, in terms of siding with the people. And the forces of freedom of change were primarily interested at the time in a peaceful transition to civilian-led government, understanding that there was, of course, a security or there could be a security vacuum if the rapid support forces were not incorporated as part of uh, these negotiations. So right now, of course, he's the deputy of the military council. And by most accounts, he really is the most influential on the side of the military because, of course, his, uh, he has forces in Khartoum and some people say they may number up to upwards of 40,000 throughout the country, not only in the Khartoum area. Given his ascendance to where he is today, do we have any evidence of a rift between the traditional armed forces, if you like, of Sudan and the RSF Janjaweed? Also, the opposition had tried to drive a wedge between the lower rank officers of Sudan's armed forces and its top brass. How effective has that strategy been? It is a strategy that has been quite effective in some sense, although in retrospect, people would think that it has not been effective. It has been effective in the sense that the protesters were able to effectively uh, draw in middle and lower ranking officers and not just the rapid support forces. I would argue uh, really the those uh, in the military establishment who actually sided with the protesters uh, were not so much Hemeti or the rapid support forces, but rather people in the national army, the Sudanese armed forces, middle and lower ranked, uh, 
who actually protected the sit-in from uh, militias and snipers during the sit-in, and that is uh, well documented. Uh, so there is no question that um, the enticement by the protesters of middle and lower ranking officers to be part of the re revolution, to return to their uh, legitimate role as the protector of the people, uh, did in fact work. Uh, and this is why you had the sit-in being so successful, and uh, it led to the ouster of Umar Bashir, although of course Hamidti likes to take credit for it. But it really is the middle and lower ranking officers who not only defected, but protected the protesters in the sit-in, which is um, extremely important. Uh, another indication of the success of the protesters and the opposition of enticing and bringing the middle and uh, lower ranking officers to the fold has to do with the massacre itself on June 3rd. I think that maybe some of your listeners are not aware, but uh, prior to this horrible massacre, uh, what uh, the military council commanders did and what the militias, the rapid support forces did was to disarm middle and lower ranking officers and detain many of them in preparation for this premeditated uh, assault against uh, the peaceful protesters in the sit-in. So it's precisely because of the effectiveness and the success of bringing uh, many middle and lower ranking officers and fermenting a division between uh, the head of the military council at the moment, General Abdel Fattah Burhan and Hemeti, uh, that you find the detention uh, and the imprisonment. Uh, recently, for example, 68 uh, middle ranking and lower ranking officers were imprisoned uh, without any charge by the military council. And that, of course, is a clear indication that there are divisions, deep divisions between the upper ranks, that small elite that really still represents the remnants of the Umar Bashir regime and rifts between, of course, the head of the military council and Hemeti himself. And most importantly, a rift, a very deep divisions between the top ranked uh, military officers and the middle and lower ranked officers who are appalled by all accounts by what happened in the massacre. They insist they had nothing to do with it. And they were not able to protect the people because they were uh, disarmed and uh, prior to the forcible and violent dispersal of the peaceful protesters in the sit-in. How serious is the rift, if you like, between RSF and Hemeti on one side and the traditional armed forces in the fact that they're both jockeying for power? Uh, well, the rifts are not that large at the moment, primarily because um, over the years, what you had is, of course, the weakening of the legitimacy and uh, the strength and the cohesiveness of the Sudanese armed forces. I would date that, of course, back to the establishment of the RSF, and particularly in 2015, when Bashir brought in the RSF uh, to basically outcompete and undermine uh, the uh, autonomy of the Sudan armed forces. That must have created a resentment on the part of those armed forces. Oh, absolutely. Without detailing all of the history of the RSF vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Sudan armed forces, there were already deep uh, rifts and even violent confrontations uh, where the RSF, for example, was utilized in the Nuba Mountains and in the Blue Nile states in recent years. Very strong kind of divisions between who was in command of operations, 
who would be in command of the foot soldiers. And the Bashir regime used the RSF to outbid and undermine the authority of the Sudan armed forces, even in the battlefield and not only in the Khartoum area. And so those rifts really remain. Um, the issue of unity between the military council and the RSF really has to do with their both kind of interest in maintaining their own survival. Burhan and Himeti have a very close relationship because your listeners may, may not be aware, but General Abdel Fattah Burhan, who is the, now the head of the military council, did also play a very important role in conjunction with Himeti and RSF as border police, so to speak, or border guards in that four. And he was very much involved with Hameti in uh, putting down insurgencies uh, that led to the killings of thousands of innocent victims in that four. So they're basically in the same political and military bed, so to speak, at the moment. And that's why between them as individuals, they still have a very close connection, uh, both of them interested in maintaining their own survival. The forces of freedom and change, which is the opposition bloc, consists of many groups and parties with a range of reformist to radical politics. Given the broad spectrum of its participants, has this bloc been able to maintain its cohesion in the face of increased state repression? Are any of traditional reformist parties drifting away from the opposition? Well, this is a very interesting question because it really hinges on and speaks to the efforts that the military council has implemented or tried to uh, put through in order to divide the opposition, which in Sudanese political history, it won't come as a surprise to you or your listeners, has been one of the most important instruments uh, or tools to maintain authoritarian military rule. Uh, and prior to the massacre, there was absolutely no question that prior to June 3rd, there were many efforts on the part of the military council, Burhan himself and Himeti, in order to entice the traditional political parties, including the Ummah party, for example, and some would say other traditional parties, certainly some of the smaller Islamist political parties like the Popular Congress Party, into the fold to draw them away from the umbrella opposition of the forces of freedom of change. Uh, there were indications in the negotiations prior to June 3rd that there would be the possibility of undermining the unity of the opposition by bringing these traditional parties to basically the fold under the umbrella of the military council itself. But what occurred on June 3rd was, in my estimation, a huge miscalculation, a strategic miscalculation by the military council and Hamid himself. Because immediately after the massacre, and given the level of the violence of the massacre, of course, that closed the ranks within the opposition, including the Ummah party and other parties that may have been willing to engage in negotiations with the military council separately. So the, the real depth, severity of the violence has now brought all of the political parties into taking one position against the military council, primarily because they genuinely, I believe, are appalled by what happened to the Sudanese victims of the massacre. And also because at the moment, the Sudanese street is unanimous in opposition uh, to the military council and what they did. And uh, no political party that is worthy of any legitimacy or hopes to maintain any legitimacy with the Sudanese people uh, would negotiate separately with the military council at this uh, moment. And so what the unintended consequences of the massacre have been on the part from the perspective of the military council and Hemeti is to actually unite the opposition of the forces of freedom of change, even though there were discussions and perhaps some issues of divisions in the past. And this is why in the 
mediation at the moment, you find great unanimity in terms of the conditions put forward uh, that are agreed upon by all of the different uh, groupings that make up the opposition. So this strategy of divide and rule that uh, Mr. Hameti is well known for does not seem to be working. This particular divide and rule strategy of trying to co-opt the traditional political parties or some form of political forces is not working. And so what Hamiti has resorted uh, to trying to do at the moment in the past few days is to try to generate support from a separate constituency. In other words, having lost the legitimacy from the Sudanese people who are the protesters, and of course, having lost any kind of legitimacy with respect to the political parties themselves, he is now going to trying to co-opt traditional leaders from his area in Darfur that belong to his also his clan and other clans in the region uh, by basically uh, promoting and uh, patronizing sheikhs from the different clans in the different parts of the country, promising them not only political appointments in the future, but even more importantly, finance and funding if they decide, if they agree to be loyal to him. So he's trying to reconstruct uh, new patronage networks from the traditional leaders using institutions that date back to the colonial era. These are native administrations or local administrations that were used by successive governments, including Nimeri and Omar Bashir, in order to establish and institutionalize support among the traditional leaders in different parts of the country. And so what he's doing is really replicating attempts that were done in the past in order to use traditional authorities to generate a new constituency for him as a way to outweigh what in Sudan we call the modern forces that include the political parties, uh, unions, professional associations. But so far it has not been successful because it's very transparent what he's uh, trying to do. And of course, the unanimity of the opposition is so strong that it is unlikely that he'll be able to generate the kind of level of strength from this traditional constituency in ways that would strengthen his power. The protest movement seems to have adjusted its tactics. It has called for a civil disobedience campaign as well as nighttime demonstrations. Protesters have also been placing barricades in the streets and running away because being out there is simply prayerless. Can you talk about these tactics and their efficacy? Yes, I I wouldn't say that these are um, new tactics. I think in previous shows I'd emphasized that uh, there were uh, always from the very beginning a mix of uh, tools of uh, peaceful civil disobedience that had been put on the table by the forces of freedom of change and particularly by the Sudanese professional associations, which uh, really is the organization that orchestrates these protests. There had always from the beginning uh, been an insistence on a combination of uh, different tools associated with peaceful civil disobedience. These include street protests, work stoppages, uh, strikes, neighborhood processions, even moments of silence. And those tools of civil disobedience had always been on the table. And the forces of freedom of change had always insisted that they were not ready to give those up. They had just postponed the implementation of these uh, acts of civil disobedience uh, as an act of good faith in order to enter into negotiations, which I think is something that is very commendable. But following the massacre, most Sudanese and the leadership of the opposition and the Sudanese Professional Association has declared and returned to the strategies 
that they began with in, in December and even before then. As uh, the leaders of the Sudanese Professional Association has have stated, we are back, so to speak, to square one. Because of the sit-in was dispersed violently, the emphasis now is on focusing on protest in the neighborhoods of Khartoum and throughout the region. Over the last two days, you have remarkable resurgence of street protests throughout the neighborhoods of Umdurman and Khartoum. You have protests in Port Sudan that have continued over two days, protests in Karima in the north, the city of Medani in Al Jazeera state in the central part of the country, really a return to not only protests that encompass the entire social and class spectrum, but once again that encompass the entire region. The strength of this civil disobedience is really important. One element that I think may be new that your listeners would be interested in understanding is that one of the most important tools that the military council and Hemiti have been trying to utilize to undermine the uprising and the revolution in Sudan is to cut off linkages between the Sudanese Professional Association and the forces of freedom of change with the street. Uh, one of the most important elements associated with the internet blackout, and this is why it is so crucial, is not only to demoralize the revolutionaries and those supporting the uprising, which of course represent the majority of the people, but also to strategically try to undercut uh, linkages between the leaders of the opposition and the Sudan Professional Association and the protesters in the street in the different towns, uh, the three towns that make up Umdurman and throughout the country. In response, what the Sudanese Professional Association leaders have done is to establish and what I think the Americans would understand as perhaps town hall meetings, nedwat, as we say in Sudan. And that is representatives of the Sudanese Professional Association and the opposition in general are now holding these kind of speaking engagements, so to speak, that make sure that people in the street and the protesters realize that the opposition continues to represent their interest and also to make sure that there is transparency and accountability between the opposition, let's say the Sudanese Professional Association and the Freedom of Forces and Change and the people who are really braving uh, the streets and protesting at, at the risk of their lives. And so this effort on the part of the military council and Hemeti to try to disrupt uh, the linkages and alliance between what is essentially a middle class you know, opposition movement made up of professional associations and the political parties with the people on the street is ineffective because of the ingenuity, once again, of the opposition in making sure that their message is received from them personally to those protesters who are now engaging in protest throughout Khartoum and in many parts of the entire country. The opposition had been mobilizing by posting its calls on social media networks. But as you mentioned, since June 3rd crackdown, internet and mobile phones have been widely cut across Sudan. The internet is now only accessible through land phone lines or fiber optic cables. And even then the connection is erratic this internet blackout must have impacted the mobilization of protesters. Absolutely, it has impacted. But what is more interesting is the fact that it has not deterred the protesters. It certainly played a very important role in cut off, cutting off communications and making it much more difficult to reach out to everyone in the different parts of the capital city of Khartoum and particularly in the regions. But I think uh, what the military council has underestimated is that uh, for many years there had already been real kind of establishment and almost, and I would say, institutionalization of 
neighborhood committees that had linked up with each other face to face and had been coordinating with each other, not to mention, as uh, Sudanese recently informed me and uh, wanted me to highlight years of volunteerism and engagement in forms of civil disobedience across neighborhoods. And so what you find is, of course, kind of a longer history of uh, mobilization cohesiveness uh, represented by what Sudanese now like to call the Lijan al-Taghir or the Committees for Change. These are genuinely grassroots institutions across the different neighborhoods. And this is why you find such strength and such resurgence in terms of the protest. So yes, while the, the blockage of the internet has certainly reduced the kind of linkages between the opposition and the protesters, I think what is uh, really remarkable is uh, the, the resilience of the protesters throughout Khartoum and throughout the region. And that really has to do with not only tactics, but also one has to say a real unanimous opposition to 30 years of autocratic rule. And as many protesters have highlighted, there's no going back because there is no future, especially for the youth of the country, with this or any military government. And so this call for Madania, for a civilian-led government, is so popular among all of the Sudanese. And the massacre itself has highlighted to many in Sudan, particularly also, we can't forget that it occurred on the 28th of Ramadan itself, where people were fasting for the holy month, that it's very clear that the military council is not intent on you know, ceding power to a civilian-led government unless it is done, compelled to do so. Uh, and so both the kind of political objectives, ideological unity in terms of the political objectives and a history of organization, volunteerism across neighborhoods is very, very important. And of course, um, as I just mentioned, you have the leaders of the opposition adapting their own leaderships and their own strategies vis-a-vis these neighborhoods in order to uh, continue to link up with the protesters themselves, and equally importantly, also to send out the message that the forces of freedom of change in the opposition is reflecting their interest, understands their interest, and they are holding these town hall meetings, so to speak, or at least in the neighborhoods, detailing every aspect of the negotiations. In many cases, the opposition has admitted to mistakes in the past for the sake of transparency and accountability. And they have also made it very clear to those in the neighborhoods that their number one condition, of course, is to, in addition, of course, to the longer objective of a civilian-led government is to take very seriously the massacres that occurred and to call for an international investigation to investigate the killing of these martyrs that has really affected the entire country. Khaled, let's talk about the repression in Sudan. There have been reports of protesters being arrested and taken to unmarked buildings where they are severely beaten and tortured. I must say that this is reminiscent of what the security apparatus did in Iran when the protest movement started 10 years ago in June 1988 in the aftermath of the presidential elections there. In Iran, there were protesters who actually lost their lives in those detention centers. Can you talk about these detention centers? What do we know about them? Uh, yes, well, unfortunately, the model from the 1990s, as you probably know, of the ghost houses, those disappeared and door tortured, began very immediately after the coup, Omar Bashir took over the Islamist-backed coup of 1989 in that summer. Iran played an important role. Uh, I think it's well documented now that there was at that time a close relationship between the Iranian government and the Bashir regime, and they helped to establish and even train some of the members of the intelligence services that 
enacted a great deal of torture. It's difficult to describe the amount of and different forms of torture, humiliation, but also isolation and, of course, physical torture that began as early as the 1990s. I'm glad you asked this question because I think what maybe listeners are not aware is that these 30 years have really uh, represented a continuation of these kind of detentions, torture. Uh, this occurred throughout the 1990s. 28 military officers were summarily executed right after the coup. Very few Sudanese forget that. All of these are considered martyrs in these uh, three decades. That continued with the, the violence against the Alforians. That was of course, uh, not only in terms of the killing of so many um, hundreds of thousands, but also the use of sexual-based and gender-based violence against uh, uh, against uh, victims in Darfur and throughout uh, the in the Nuba Mountains and elsewhere. A variety of different forms of human rights violations, including detentions and torture, which uh, are legion. I mean, you just have to. Uh, really look at uh, Amnesty International's reports and others. Uh, Sudan, through the past three decades, has represented and has had the worst record of uh, human rights, one of the worst records in the entire region. Uh, and of course, uh, we know of at least 25 individuals, including Bashir, have been indicted for uh, crimes against uh, humanity and war crimes. Uh, so uh, I think that many of your listeners are aware of that. But what they may not be fully cognizant of is that uh, this uprising is also um, a result of the memory and understanding that all of these uh, this violence and torture has continued continued uh, by the early by 2011 Unfortunately, with the emergence of the youth mo movement, uh, youth in particular were targeted uh, at the time, and they continue to be. And now, um, while I don't have the specifics of those detained, uh, um, there are uh, thousands that continue to be detained. This is why it's one of the conditions of the opposition that uh, this is a central condition to resume negotiations, that they must be released, which is extremely important. At the beginning of the protest in December, if you look at uh, the martyrs, uh, some were shot by snipers, but a very well-known incident, of course, as you know, a doctor trying to save patients was killed point blank. You had a school teacher uh, who was uh, tortured in detention, and uh, his uh, uh, he becomes, uh, this is in Khashm al-Kirba to the north, and um, he was uh, one of the, you know, kind of big uh, uh, continues to be a very important, uh, you know, symbol of the kind of torture that has been meted out uh, by uh, not only uh, the Bashir regime, but even the, the military council that is uh, heading uh, what is going on now. Um, the details of the massacre itself, there are reports of people who are not only thrown in the Nile after being um, executed, but also, you know, uh, having their feet tied to cement blocks and thrown in, in the Nile. So those kind of issues are very important. And this is why I have to say that it's, of course, similar to Iran and other cases. It is also one of the reasons that the Sudanese community outside, the diasporic community, and those who are interested in helping have mobilized to a degree that I personally haven't seen before. The Sudanese diaspora especially has uh, campaigned and protested throughout the world. There is mobilization to try to deal with the internet 
internet blackout uh, through a variety of different means in order to make sure to bring the word out in terms of what is happening to innocent civilians. Uh, many, of course, are really concerned of the young leadership that is leading these protests. So I think the result of it, it's very similar to, to what happened in Iran and in other cases, of course, throughout the region. I think it is because of this unfortunate history that continues to go on that the Sudanese diaspora is really insistent on publicizing what is going on in the Sudan at the moment. And you see the condemnations of different human rights bodies and the EU, African Union, others that are highlighting the human rights catastrophe that, that is going on. Khaled, Sudan's professional association, SPA, has been the main organizer of mass protests since last December. The SPA deliberately has never disclosed the names of its leaders because they knew the regime would try to decapitate the organization. Do you think the organization and its leadership have been fairly intact during this crackdown? Um, I think that they have been fairly intact, uh, mostly because of their long history in terms of the associations themselves. Uh, while they are what the SPA likes to call spokespeople, uh, rarely does the Sudanese Professional Association announce leaders. Uh, what you have seen publicly in terms of speeches are those appointed as spokespersons. And, and the, the reason for that is not only to signal to the Sudanese population that they're, that they're not interested in the political ambitions or political appointments, but also to reflect the reality and of organization of the Sunnis Professional Association. These are doctors, as you know, lawyers, engineers, um, who are essentially a trade unionist and professional association. So uh, there is a very democratic element to the leadership. One of the reasons they've remained intact is that uh, there is no kind of hierarchy in which a, one leader would be, one charismatic leader would dominate the Sunnis Professional Association. Uh, this is not to say that some leaders are not really important, uh, but there is, a, so to speak, a revolving leadership, so to speak, or spokespeople. And you'll see that, for example, this is why um, I know some colleagues asked why there are so many different faces that often speak for the Sudanese Professional Association. And the reason is that it's a loose association organization, often a variety of different professional associations, including academics. Uh, and so um, it's very hard to pick out one leader that you know, you, these, this government or the military council can target that would somehow bring down the edifice of the Sunnis Professional Association that began as early as 2012 and began as a professional association and not a political party. Um, and that, I think, is uh, part of its strength. Not to say that there aren't some very visible leadership that are in danger and, uh, and are being targeted, absolutely. But I would argue that the resilience of the Sunnis Professional Association lies in the fact that it's a genuinely democratic trade and uh, professional association and that, I think, uh, is uh, one of the reasons it continues to uh, have this kind of resiliency, but also have legitimacy among uh, the majority of people uh, in Sudan, even when the larger opposition, the, free, the forces for free, freedom of change, are accused of making mistakes uh, and criticized by the majority of the revolutionaries or the protesters, the Sudanese Professional Association remains uh, legitimate among uh, people on the street and the majority of the Sudanese uh, population. So I think that that is its strength. But nevertheless, with this internet blackout, it's very important to work towards overturning it in order to protect the lives of everyone, uh, including those spokespeople of the Sudanese Professional Association. Since you mentioned uh, you know, making mistakes. In retrospect, how do you assess the strategy pursued by 
forces of declaration of freedom of change and the tactics deployed by them in the Sudanese uprising are the things that they could have done differently, particularly in the lead up to the June 3rd massacre? Um, I think that that's a very important question. I, I can't have a definitive answer to that. And what I mean by that is that it's uh, um, open to debate. Um, and I, I would uh, hesitate to be, to because of the democratic nature of the opposition and its pluralism. Um, I think that what I can say, of course, that that is a question that is debated among Sudanese themselves in terms of the forces of freedom of change. Um, and that is that uh, one of the issues, uh, let's say, criticism or, or uh, questions is, should the forces of freedom of change had uh, been more insistent on not negotiating uh, with the military council, you know, following the ouster of Bashir, for example, should they have been more adamant in uh, utilizing the power of the street in order to get as much, um, you know, conditions or compromises from the military council and make sure not to give them so-called the opportunity to engage in delaying tactics in order to maintain military rule. That's a very difficult question to answer, but I I would, uh, you know, from my perspective, I think that the, the forces of freedom of change did not really have a choice. First of all, it's an umbrella group of different political parties, and of course there are many political and the divisions. That is something the opposition frequently tries to get across that, you know, this is a, an umbrella group of different uh, opposition political parties and associations and civil society organizations. And, and certainly because of that, there will be a lot of, um, you know, debates on various issues and even differences, which is really important. But the reason I think that the forces of freedom of change did, from my perspective, did not make an error is that uh, throughout the protest and the, the negotiations, there has always, there has been a real understanding on the part of the opposition that they must be a role for the military. Um, and this, I think, are lessons that they learned from, uh, I would argue, from experiences elsewhere, whether it's Egypt or other countries uh, in the Arab world or Africa that have, of course, also witnessed uprisings and also who labor under a, a military state that's very, very deep, so to speak. And uh, and what the, the opposition did was understand that in order to have a peaceful transition to a civilian-led government, you had to avoid a security vacuum. And there is the experience of Sudan itself, right, with that, that sort of a transition I and mean, the role it played by the military in, in Sudan's recent history, no? Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, the, there is a role, but the role is a little bit different. In the past, actually, the military was much more cohesive, and so they were able to serve as caretakers, ushering in very quickly a civilian-led democracy. What has changed under the Bashir regime over the last three decades, as I think I mentioned in a previous show, is the multiplication of militias and intelligence forces. Um, some people say they're upwards of, um, you know, uh, six or seven within the National Security Intelligence Services, and of course, you have Hemeti's militias, uh, the rapid support forces. Um, the opposition is very cognizant that the developments with respect to the security sector have changed. They've become much more complicated. That they, they were multiplied by Omar Bashir and the Islamist in power in order to uh, ward off any kind of popular uprising. So just as the, the protesters have learned from the past, uh, unfortunately, the Omar Bashir regime uh, learned from the previous successful uprisings that led to civilian government. And immediately in the 1990s, Omar Bashir and his allies uh, begin to splinter 
the uh, security forces, beginning with the establishment of the popular defense forces that were supposed to undermine and take power away from the Sudan armed forces, and of course the establishment of an array of different groups, militias, under the umbrella of the National Intelligence Security Services, uh, under, first of all, Nafia, and, and then later a man by the name of Salah Ghosh, and then of course the establishment of the Janjaweed first, and then it, their mutation under the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, all of this is to say that uh, for the opposition, they uh, realized, and of course, I think generally most Sudanese, that there have been three decades of a security sector that has been utilized against the people and has been fragmented in ways to undermine any form of opposition. And for that reason, the forces of freedom of change have been very careful uh, to make sure that uh, a transition to a civilian government would take into account this regrettable history, uh, to, to put it mildly, and to try to uh, reinvigorate the Sudan armed forces in a way that would deal with uh, any kind of chance of a security vacuum that would lead to deep instability in the country. I think it shows a great deal of foresight on the part of the opposition. It shows a great deal of learning. It also uh, really shows not only that the opposition has learned from its own history, but also of the unfortunate failed popular uprisings in other parts of the Arab world and even in Africa. And so for that reason, putting all of that together, I think that from my perspective, the forces of freedom of change, uh, as well as the Sudanese Professional Association, did not really have the choice but to try to engage in negotiations with the military council in ways that uh, would um, ensure that this kind of instability would not uh, occur. Certainly they made miscalculations. I think that uh, they may be underestimated from my perspective, um, the kind of remnants of the Bashir regime and even the Islamist regime in terms of uh, the relationship between the military, the militia, and even the economic institutions that have been monopolized by the regime. And the fact that it is very likely that uh, this military council had from the very beginning uh, engaged in delaying tactics in order to safeguard their uh, rule and their position in political power. And also, very importantly, of course, maybe underestimating the extent to which this military regime and its individuals that comprise it, including Himeti, are extremely wary and very, very anxious about being held accountable for what are tantamount to war crimes in the country. Before we move on and talk about uh, regional and, and international powers and their role in Sudan, I would like to ask you one more question about the, you know, the nature of, the, or the base of support for the regime. For three decades, Omar al-Bashir and the Sudanese regime pushed for an Islamization project in Sudan. The Islamist forces were an important constituency of the regime for several years. When we look at the regime today, where is its base of support? Well, that's a very important question. The initial base of support, of course, was the Islamist movement in Sudan that represented uh, middle-class, uh, educated Sudanese in Khartoum. And then, of course, many were also recruited in Darfur and the regional areas. There was a period in the initial years that there was a semblance, of, let's say 30% or 35% of the population, especially in the modern sector of society, had supported the Islamist movement and the initial years of the Bashir regime. Uh, over uh, these three decades, that has been uh, undermined by the authoritarian 
authoritarian nature of the regime itself. And, and as I said before, the state under Bashir eventually became, you know, military authoritarian state that uh, really privileged only a few, not only in the military, but even elites within the Islamist movement. So really, by 2011, 2012, you begin to have the splintering of the Islamist movement itself. Um, you know, it begins, of course, in 1999, when Turabi is basically ousted from government, and uh, um, he forms, uh, before his death, the Popular Congress Party, uh, that is a kind of a legacy of his National Islamic Front. Um, a few years later, you have the basic defection of many Islamist stalwarts uh, from the Bashir regime, forming, uh, in one case, under the leadership of Ghazi Atabani, the Islaho Reform Party. And so by the time that uh, Umar Bashir fell in April of this year, you had not only the splintering of the Islamist movement in different political factions, but uh, you also had the increasing narrowness of the legitimacy and the social, the political constituency of the Bashir regime. This is one of the reasons that he was forced to establish Establish, uh, first the Janjaweed and even the Rapid Support Forces as he lost support among not only civil society, but also people, uh, you know, the military establishment itself. What that has led to, of course, even before his ouster, is uh, increasing reliance on even uh, more severe forms of repression and violence, because if you have no social base and political base, of course, that is uh, what you end up with. And this is, uh, so the, the means of repression become even more important in conjunction with support from allies in the Gulf, of course, which is a key sort of patronage that kept him afloat for these last uh, years as his uh, legitimacy became extremely uh, narrow. In terms of the ideological project, I think it's very clear, maybe for listeners who are familiar with Arab countries, it's worth uh, reiterating that this is an uprising against the Islamist project, not Islam, of course, but the Islamist project itself that has been for three decades associated with authoritarianism, with corruption, and with a policy of empowerment at Temkin that really was designed to sideline the majority of the Sudanese people and enrich a few uh, elites in the military and in, in the Islamist movement itself. We may for the first time in the history see an Islamist state dislodged. Oh, yes, I think that the slogans uh, of the uprising is very clear. One of my favorites, really, was recited by the famous Kandaka, the Sudanese woman that was publicized a great deal, and that is that the chant that, that, is, that religion is innocent, uh, that Islam should not uh, be utilized in such an instrumental way. And, of course, the majority of the Sudanese, and they're really unanimous in rejecting the what Sudanese like to call the trading in Islam, the trading in religion. And so, in addition to the very difficult task of dismembering this very kind of formidable repressive state, uh, there has also been great work being done in a very critical work in uh, dismembering really the top-down Islamist project that has really undermined, um, you know, the morale of the Sudanese people and has been used instrumentally uh, as a weapon of uh, repression against the majority of the Sudanese, uh, the majority of whom, of course, are Muslim. Um, this is extremely important. Uh, there's also a great deal of emphasis that is part and parcel of this uh, critique of the Islamist project that Sudan is a, a genuinely uh, multicultural country. And uh, while the majority are absolutely Muslim, of course, we do have uh, Christians and others. And so there is a uh, you know, I think that there's a critique on three fronts, so to speak. One, uh, against the use of Islam in an in instrumentalized, in instrumental way. Another one is to safeguard the rights of non-Muslims uh, as part and parcel of the Sudanese nation. 
Uh, and another to be very clear about the issue of ethnicity or using the ethnic or racial card to divide, let's say, so-called Arabized ethnic groups from their African counterparts in different parts of the country. Uh, this has uh, been a very important uprising in this regard, but I would also say that it has been, as I mentioned in previous shows, uh, been uh, a project that has been underway for you know almost two decades now, if not three decades, uh, in order to be clear that uh, this is not an uprising, obviously, against the tradition of Islam and Islam itself, which is uh, extremely central to Sudanese culture, society, and, of course, uh, spirituality. Uh, but it is really an uprising against authoritarianism and the instrumental use of Islam to legitimize repression, authoritarianism, and uh, essentially an economic kleptocracy. So, Khaled, I think it's fair to say that intervention by external forces has had a profound impact on the uprising in Sudan. Let's start with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Triad. What do we need to know about their objectives and their actions? Uh, yes, um, I think in previous shows, uh, one of the scenarios I had put forth had to do with, you know, the, the success and efficacy of the uprising would really, uh, as in other cases, rely, number one, on the unity of the opposition, which has been established, um, the fact that there will be a fiscal crisis of the you know, of the military, which, uh, you know, compels them to engage in negotiations, which is another factor. Another third factor that was uh, and continues to be determinant, not only for Sudan, but elsewhere, is this external uh, patronage and support. And what has determined, uh, at least in recent weeks, the negotiations uh, has been the support of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt to the military council. As I think that um, I've mentioned in a previous show, and I think it's well known to many listeners, especially those who follow the Arab uh, region, is that the uprisings, especially the popular uprisings uh, in, in the region, and in this case, Sudan, uh, threaten uh, these countries for uh, very important reasons. For Egypt, of course, uh, and under the leadership of Sisi, uh, the notion of a democratic Sudan would have a great deal of influence in a country which uh, still, of course, has a great deal of opposition in civil society against authoritarianism there, and of course, is very close culturally and politically to Sudan. Uh, that's extremely important. For the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia and uh, United Arab Emirates, um, there is, of course, a, a couple of different interests that uh, have uh, uh, led to these countries, uh, not only supporting uh, the military council diplomatically, but also pledging upwards of $3 billion uh, to the military council to support them, although only about a uh, reportedly 500 million have actually been received by the military council. Uh, for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, their interest, uh, as your listeners uh, may know, um, is that in 2015, under Hemeti and even Burhan's uh, uh, leadership, these are two uh, men who recruited uh, Sudanese uh, soldiers um, to fight in the Saudi and uh, United Arab Emirates-led war in Yemen. So I believe at the moment there are 14,000 Sudanese soldiers, and uh, there even recently Hemeti and Burhan sent even more Sudanese soldiers to fight on the side of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So there is a strategic element there, uh, the use of Sudanese soldiers. I want to emphasize that uh, the uprising in Sudan, uh, the majority of Sudanese are vehemently opposed 
to the war in Yemen and, of course, vehemently opposed to Sunni soldiers being forcibly recruited and sent to Yemen. This is, uh, you'll see it throughout the protests and the slogans and the social media from Sudan. That's very, very important. There are also, I think that maybe your listeners are not aware, and I think I mentioned it uh, in other shows, is that there are, is a, also a great deal of economic investment, both in terms of land and agricultural resources on the part not only of Saudi Arabia, but especially the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Sudan, I think, is seen by many people as an underdeveloped country, but um, as I've mentioned, uh, and of course, Arab countries are fully aware, it is also a country extremely rich in natural resources, whether it's water, minerals, gold, and even oil, uh, and uh, land, which is a particular interest to the agricultural investment schemes of the United Arab Emirates. So there are um, political, geostrategic, and even economic interests that have uh, led to the United Arab Emirates and um, Saudi Arabia to support the military council. Egypt, of course, is concerned about the issue not only of the democracy, spillover of, uh, of an uprising in Sudan, but also the potential of instability uh, across the borders. There are border disputes between Egypt and Sudan and that uh, could come to a head if there's civilian-led government that uh, wants to re-enter into negotiations with uh, Egypt on in terms of some of the border areas, including an area called Halaib. So uh, these are intricate, very close geopolitical and economic interests that have led these, uh, what we now call the Arab Troika, uh, to support the military council um, in uh, contradistinction to the will of the majority of the Sudanese people. So this, of course, are uh, countries that have also worked to undermine popular uprisings in other Arab countries. On the other side, it's very important to mention uh, that we have the African Union that following the massacre uh, immediately suspended Sudan from the African Union and now uh, is taking the lead in terms of mediating between the military council and the forces of freedom of change. That unlike Arab countries at the moment, the African Union has taken a much stronger position with respect not only to con condemning the massacre and the human rights violations, but also insisting that they must be a civilian-led government in Sudan. The African Union has also agreed with the forces of freedom of change that the interim period should be three months and not nine months, as was suggested in, by Burhan and the military council. Of course, nine months means that they would be able to manage elections in ways to perpetuate their own rule. And the African Union has taken the position with the forces of freedom of change that there must be a civilian government or rather an interim period of three years in order to address institutional issues, uh, issues of law and order and the issue of the law itself. And of course, campaign law, legislation, electoral laws that would be amenable or lead to free and fair elections following those three years. And so I think the African Union in this sense is is playing a very, at this point at least, a more much more positive role. Uh, Ethiopia, uh, the, the Ethiopian Prime Minister, uh, Abiy Ahmed, has essentially uh, announced that he wants to resume talks based on the previous agreements that were agreed upon by the Military Council and the Forces of Freedom of Change. And that, again, is a, is a good sign because there was an agreement that was agreed upon on the different levels of government and the representation of the freedom, forces of freedom of change vis-a-vis -vis the military. And that, I think, is uh, where we stand at now with the um, military council and its leadership trying to renege on an agreement that they essentially agreed to prior to the massacre of June 3rd. And so this is extremely uh, important. So both Arab countries are uh, 
the Arab region, of course, is playing a very important role in determining the events uh, and developments in Sudan. But I would argue that the African Union is taking a more, um, I would say, more more positive uh, kind of uh, intervention, uh, diplomatic uh, and otherwise. In fact, recently, the African Union, um, at least uh, according to Abiy Ahmed himself, that uh, um, have suggested that they are willing to impose sanctions on the military council if it does not pursue negotiations in good faith based on previous the previous agreement before the horrible massacre of June 3rd. The Egypt-Saudi-Arabia-UAE as you mentioned, are against any sort of grassroots mobilization that leads to establishment of democratic institutions in the region. How would you assess the role of the United States in Sudan's political upheaval? Well, I think the, the role of the United States is very important. Historically, of course, at least in the case of Egypt and other Arab countries, the United States, of course, is an ally of these countries, particularly Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think that they have different calculations in the case of Sudan. I think the United States is weighing uh, some a different calculation, and that has to do with the issue of stability versus instability. And here I think that I have to highlight that at the end of the day, ultimately, the developments in Sudan will be determined by the strength of the opposition and the Sudanese people in terms of their sustained protest. And what I mean by that linked to the U.S. is that the United States currently is weighing whether uh, not supporting um, a civilian-led government would actually be deeply counterproductive in terms of leading to instability in Sudan, the Horn of Africa, and the region. Remember, this would lead to instability not only you know, for some Arab countries, but for the entire Sahel region. And so Sudan uh, has a geographical and strategic position that is a bit, of course, naturally different even from some of the Arab countries. So at this point, the United States, as you know, has uh, not only sent the Assistant Secretary of State Tibor Nagy to Khartoum last year, uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago in order to to mediate or to support the mediation. But uh, they've also, I believe, appointed a special envoy to Sudan, which signals a kind of a commitment, a more sustained commitment to resolving the conflict in, in the country and also to sustain uh, the U.S. role in pushing for negotiations between the military council and the civilian-led government. Uh, but by all accounts, I think that it's uh, well known that the United States is at this point supporting the African Union and the Ethiopian prime minister for a resolution. Uh, and uh, the statements of the of the State Department, at least, have been very clear in supporting a civilian-led transition government and also clear in terms of agreeing to returning to the previous agreement that was agreed upon by both parties in Sudan. So I think that at this point that they are certainly on the camp of the African Union uh, and um, the Ethiopian prime minister supporting that effort to uh, lead, in their words, to uh, a swift, quote unquote, transition to a civilian led democracy. Uh, What remains to be seen is to what extent the United States can convince and persuade uh, uh, the Gulf countries and Egypt that um, that, uh, you know, supporting the military council would undermine the interest of these countries in terms of leading to instability. Because when you go against the will of the majority of the people after almost seven months of protest, um, there can be no stability or peace, frankly, without the choice and the will of the people being being met. So that's really important. I do think there are divisions between Egypt on the one side and and uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as well. Um, Egypt, I believe, CC and the government of Egypt is concerned about supporting Hamiti because of his, uh, uh, you know, the potential of uh, 
of instability across the borders of Egypt. He is not an individual that, that Egypt or Sisi feel is a credible or reliable ally. They would prefer, of course, to, to deal with a military a leader that is akin to the the, the one that is is uh, is leading Egypt, and I think that uh, the Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, of course, have uh, strong ties to Hemeti and Burhan for the reasons that I mentioned, including the the war in Yemen. But I think there is room to maneuver. Increasingly, there may be a change on the part of these this Arab troika. Uh, but this all depends, I think, at this point on uh, on really the the way the negotiations will pan out, but also to what extent the African Union can indeed put pressure to resume negotiations based on pat the past agreement. So I can't be sure about that, but that's what we have to look look to look for right now. We'll see how United States policy will evolve or devolve throughout this process, because as you recall, uh, United States w- was, in so many words, supporting a, a democratic transition in Egypt when there was an uprising against Mubarak, but they ended up on the side of General Sisi at the end. I mean, it's one thing to pay lip service to an uprising and its democratic aspirations, and it's another thing when you kind of align yourself with these authoritarian leaders. I think so. I think to be quite clear, I, and I want to represent the voices of the Sunnis' opposition. I think it's really important, uh, your listeners, for everyone to understand, I'm sure they do, that the majority of Sunnis across the opposition and across the country realize that uh, really the fate is really based on uh, the, you know, the actions of the Sunnis people themselves. I mean, from the very beginning, it was very clear that this is a movement that is essentially a non-aligned movement, so to speak. Uh, there's always been an emphasis that uh, an understanding of the forces externally arrayed against a popular uprising such as this one. Uh, And this is why so much effort has been made into organization, coordination, and sustaining the protests. If there was even an inkling, frankly, that... uh, that they would be kind of guaranteed support uh, from external actors, that they would not, the opposition in Sudan would not have exerted such effort at organization, fair. coordination, and sustainability. Fair enough. And so, yeah, fair uh, enough. So that's, that's really- um, uh, you know, you mentioned that the rapid support forces, Janjaweed, have been deployed to patrol Sudan's border with Libya and round up uh, Eritrean Ethiopian refugees as a result of what was called the Khartoum process which is basically an agreement between European Union and African states, including Sudan, to stem the flow of migrants to Europe. And and this project is funded by European Union to a large extent. Where does European Union stand with respect to the turmoil in Sudan? Well, to be very direct about it and clear, as one author, a journalist uh, that I respect recently wrote, um, it hinges on uh, almost a single issue, and that is stemming the tide of immigration. You know, uh, this is uh, uh, really a uh, big problematic in terms of despite the condemnations associated with the human rights violations by the military council. We know the history of the European Union vis-a-vis Sudan in particular uh, is the number one and in the past has been almost the exclusive concern is the fact that Sudan, from their perspective, is uh, one of the, if not the most important kind of uh, routes to uh, out migration to, uh, to, to, to Europe. And so by 2014, 2015, as you, as you just mentioned, the Khartoum process essentially is an, was an agreement between the European Union and Bashir regime in order to, you know, finance, uh, 
quote unquote border security, especially along the borders of Darfur and Libya and uh, and that part of uh, of Sudan, which is uh, really important to highlight. What happened following that, of course, is that Umar Bashir essentially contracted or subcontracted that mission not only to Hamidi but to the president, uh, to the present uh, head of the military council, um, uh, General Abdel Fattah Burhan. So Burhan and Hamidi worked uh, in tandem and in cooperation together in the Darfur region um, with the, the financing. Of course, the European Union would insist it's indirect because it was sent to Bashir, but with the money of the funding from the from the European Union in order to stem the tide of uh, migration. The result has been a great deal of not only uh, vi- uh, human rights violations against uh, migrants, but also the engagement and the establishment of a, a criminal and a racket, um, you know, established in great part by Hamidi that basically uh, engaged in human trafficking with respect to immigration. Not only that, the violence meted out against uh, um, those uh, wishing to migrate for a variety of reasons led to even more instability and political conflict and human rights violations of a very severe kind in the Darfur region, leading to even more, the greater immigration flows. Uh, so not only was it uh, counterproductive from the perspective of the Europeans, but it also emboldened Hemeti and Burhan uh, in terms of uh, consolidating their political power. Only recently, Hemeti went on uh, uh, Sudanese television requesting that the European Union should thank him formally for the work that he had done at, uh, at on their behalf. And so, um, you know, this kind of issue, single issue of immigration has not only uh, led to human rights violations and stability, greater out-migration and refugees in the country, but uh, it's also really undermined the role of the European Union with respect to resolving this conflict. So I think that that is really Im- important to keep in mind. Um, that is, uh, you know, I, I think that most Sudanese and the opposition has made it very clear that um, those kind of issues have to do with number one, economic crisis, and number two, political conflict. Uh, so you cannot really stem the tide of refugees without dealing with the serious conflicts in Sudan, that including the wars uh, and the insurgencies uh, in the country that uh, the opposition is trying to resolve, and to deal with the deep economic crisis. That is the only way to deal with the root causes uh, of why people would want to migrate at the risk of their own lives. And only a civilian-led government would be able to or have the potential to address the root causes of this concern that seems to be the number one concern of the European Union. Last but not least, we should talk about uh, the role played by Russia and China. How have they responded to the June 3rd massacre and Sudan's uprising in general? Um, well, they played a, the regular kind of role of, of veto in terms of the recent meeting of the Security Council. They uh, regularly, of course, oppose condemnation of the Military Council. They've argued, both China and Russia argued, uh, of course, based on the principle of sovereignty and uh, non-intervention in the sovereign affairs of uh, member states. Uh, uh, recently, in terms of the discussion around the uh, the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court had, of course, held a special session that called on uh, uh, reinvigorating and, and reopening the file on Omar Bashir and the 24 or so other uh, Sudanese officials who have been indicted by the ICC. The majority of um, countries voted in the affirmative, but China and Russia vetoed that uh, kind of push to 
to, you know, once again, uh, taking the ICC verdict seriously. So that is uh, really uh, their position uh, of uh, uh, under the guise of sovereignty, of course, that that is something that is expected from those two countries. Uh, the role of uh, you know, Russia is a, a bit more complicated even than China because of, as if you, you may have learned from, you know, some of the discussions on, on the massacre itself is that it's now become crystal clear that a mercenary force, a Russian mercenary force has been uh, not only funding, but in consultation with the paramilitary forces in Sudan. And they had played even an important role in the dis- decision making uh, reportedly. One group, the Wagner Group, under particularly individual in Russia that runs basically a mercenary kind of uh, security force, um, had not only given advice uh, uh, on the timing of the massacre, but had um, given you know, advice in terms of how the massacre should be executed or how the city should be forcibly dispersed. Um, and so that is something that is now well known. Uh, there was also the, the same organization, the same security force had uh, been utilized by Bashir in the last days before his ouster against protesters. So I can't say for sure whether, you know, Moscow itself is directly linked, but there's no question now the documents leaked uh, and printed in the, you know, in the newspapers uh, indicate clearly that uh, there is a Russian security force, basically a mercenary force or, or you know, forces for hire uh, have um, helped to participate in devising at least, if not participating in the the forcible dispersal of the of the sit-in. Although, of course, I would put the greatest uh, blame on not only Hemiti, but the military council that had promised to safeguard the, the lives of the pr- peaceful protesters and failed to do so. But all of this, I think, is wh- why the forces of freedom of change insists very, very strongly on, you know, uh, independent international investigation into the violence and the killings uh, and, of course, the the, the the rapes uh, that followed that were that represented the the forcible d- dispersal of the sit-in. That's why the investigation committee is is one of the most important conditions that the forces of freedom of change have put forth in order to resume uh, negotiations. And that I think is uh, is uh, highlights why that is so important. In addition to the fact that. The forces of freedom of change have also talked about not only bringing those uh, accountable to trial, but also to begin the process of transitional justice for the many, many that have been killed in the course of not only these uh, protests, but in the past. So they've also put forth a real important recommendation associated with accountability for those responsible for this violence and the killings, uh, but also um, put in place uh, mechanisms of transitional justice so that the Sudanese population can move forward in the context of the civilian interim government, given the, the you know severity and the history of violence uh, against innocent civilians in the country. Finally, how do you see the future of the uprising in Sudan? Will there be a dismantling of the regime followed by sociopolitical transformation? Or are we going to witness an armed conflict that would turn into a full-fledged civil war? Um, well, I think there's already been, you know, uh, a socio-political transformation at the level of civil society in Sudan. It really is remarkable. I always emphasized it to you in previous shows, uh, and now it's uh, really clear that 
Uh, given the large percentage of young people in the country, uh, what we see and now Sudanese in general acknowledge is a real sea change in t- terms of um, the social political transformation, especially among young people that represent the majority in the country, in terms of dealing with issues of uh, ethnic conflict, issues of race, uh, dealing with uh, many decades of civil conflict across the country. Uh, and as I said before, also understanding clearly that the instrumental use of Islam or religion uh, is there tailored to benefit the few against the as, against the majority? The issues of corruption, accountability that have uh, taken center stage. There has been a real social and uh, political transformation. While the role of women, of course, in in the public sphere has always been important in Sudan, I've spoken uh, to you about that before in detail. I think it's clear now that the issues of uh, gender inequality is very, very important. Uh, So as Sudanese say, in terms of the social and cultural transformation, there is no going back. And I think you can see the evidence of that uh, even following this uh, massacre of June 3rd, as I said at the beginning of of your broadcast, a real unanimity in terms of the population against the military council and the interest in and uh, real uh, firm position towards uh, wanting a civilian-led government and uh, and the democracy, multi-party democracy, that's important. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, insisting that the entire country has been, you know, undermined economically by this regime. So there is a social and cultural transformation that's reflected in the protests we see uh, right now across uh, across the country uh, that uh, many people uh, did not expect following the massacre that only a few days later uh, the Sudanese Professional Association would ask and uh, schedule yet uh, more forms of peaceful civil disobedience and uh, um, you know the majority of people in Khartoum and uh, throughout the country begin to participate in very increasingly strong numbers so that I think is really well established in terms of going forward I think that the forces of freedom of change have been very careful in uh, mitigating against kind of the forces of instability and uh, of the type that you mentioned, a scenario of uh, Assyria or Somalia or even Libya. I think this is why I detailed why they are so careful in their negotiations, why they continue to insist that there is uh, our middle and lower ranking officers, what Sudanese opposition likes to call al-Shurafa, those mili- those honorable men in the military who represent and understand that they are that they are a national army or the army of the people rather than the army of Bashir or, or al-Burhan, which is extremely uh, important to to keep in mind. As I said in previous shows, there may be one of the first that I spoke to you about any kind of instability or the violence that, you know, regional actors or others are, or people are concerned uh, with um, would, uh, and it is proven to be the case, is uh, being orchestrated by the paramilitary militias of Hemeti uh, and uh, leadership, a certain, you know, the leadership of the military council that are working in tandem to destabilize the uprising, to try to create chaos in order to intervene in more authoritarian ways. This is, of course, the script that was utilized in Egypt. It has failed in Sudan by all accounts. Many, including many privately in uh, top Egyptian officials, uh, have also you know, uh, remarked that uh, the unanimity of the Sudanese uh, opposition has really overcome this notion of uh, a chaos anarchy that, uh, um, that the paramilitary militias Hemiti and Burhan wanted to elicit in order to intervene even more forcibly. Uh, And so um, what the Sudanese opposition has so far been successful in doing is insisting on a peaceful, 
process. Uh, as I mentioned many times, uh, the most important slogan uh, in this particular uprising is Silmiya, 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 peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. In the context of uh, this, uh, you know, paramilitary militias and the might and power of the military, the Sudanese uprising and its leadership and, of course, the people on the street have been very clear that the only way to achieve a civilian that democracy and equally importantly, the only way to evade or to stop any chance of a kind of chaos, civil conflict of the type we've seen even in other countries, um, is to insist on um, a unity of the opposition and even more importantly, uh, insist on acts of dis civil disobedience that maintain uh, their peaceful nature, that uh, these protests must be peaceful, they must not be seduced, or the protesters should not be enticed by um, military forces that want them to engage in violence in order to squash the uprising. And at the end of the day, ultimately, the, you know, the, the stability and the peace, the social peace and political peace will can only be maintained by this peaceful civil disobedience. What remains, of course, in terms of your question, is um, the role of external actors, I would say, especially the African Union, um, in terms of really pushing, putting pressure on the military council in ways that would compel them to engage in negotiations and agree to the demands of the Sunnis people as represented by the forces of freedom and change. As it stands, uh, it's probably very important for your listeners to know that Hemiti is very opposed to uh, two-thirds of representation in parliament by the civilian that he and Burhan agreed to because he is very well aware and has announced that a parliament that is dominated by civilian leadership would have the objective of dismantling the rapid support forces, uh, that is to dismantle his power. So observers of Sudan and the external actors, particularly African Union, uh, have to understand that uh, this is a militia leader uh, who is interested in his own personal survival and in the survival of a paramilitary, essentially illegal militia, non-regular militia. And he is uh, intransigent and blocking negotiations because he knows full well that a civilian government would begin the slow and very difficult process of not only um, dismembering the deep state in its various guises, but also it would work towards, of course, naturally, uh, emboldening, strengthening a national army, uh, while simultaneously, of course, related to that, you know, uh, demobilizing the, the paramilitary militia that has been responsible for hundreds and hundreds uh, of thousands of lives in the country, and now in, has it, uh, is involved in uh, the brutal war in Yemen. And so um, putting all that together, I think it would behoove the international community, especially friends of Sudan, to support uh, this, this transition uh, to civilian-led government and particularly to support the forces of freedom of change as the only way out for stability for Sudan, but also for the region, I would argue. You've been listening to Khalid Madani. He's an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and the chair of the African Studies program at McGill University in Canada. He's been speaking to us about the June 3rd massacre in the Sudanese capital Khartoum and the continued movement of protest to bring a civilian rule to the country.